Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Ian Reynolds is a partner and the chief solutions architect at ZipTech, a software development consultancy focused on helping businesses build custom software. They help growth companies, enterprises, and visionary firms solve their core business objectives with agile software development. ZipTech's mission is to focus value creation on the client's core business objectives. Ian has spent the better part of his career in consulting and has served the diverse industries as finance, oil and gas, retail power, field services, midstream energy, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, transactional finance, mergers and acquisitions, restructuring, e-commerce, retail, and software development. Ian is going to be sharing with us today some of his successes and some of his failures as a second-in-command with ZipTech. So Ian, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? How did you end up at ZipTech? And and also just tell us a little bit about more about what ZipTech is. Yeah, so uh, as you expressed with my sort of little introduction there, um, I've seen and done a lot of things. And my background started with right out of college, kind of helped launch eight different sort of things to market across a couple of companies, really sort of playing in that startup game. Um, got kind of sick of that <laughs> pretty quickly and then um, decided to go back at the MBA and go into a traditional consulting role. So had the opportunity there to help some really large companies, especially in the energy space, deploy some very large solutions, uh, improve processes, and, and um, further enhance sort of their position in the market. Then I, I moved to the finance side, which is actually sort of why I initially got into consulting and um, had the opportunity to do like, like 20 billion in transactions, M&A, restructuring, uh, you know, A&D work, advisory, um, sort of you, you name it, reorgs, um, you name it, I sort of did it. And well, that was fun. Uh, you know, I sort of saw everything there was to see in, in some respects, not in all respects, and wanted to get back to kind of doing my own thing. So I was looking for a company to buy uh, and acquired half of ZipTech, moved up to Salt Lake City from Houston, and uh, it's been good. We've been, we've been growing ever since. And, and yeah, so tell us about the company. What does ZipTech do? So we provide custom software development solutions for companies that, um, you know, they need either additional staff members to complete a project or they need somebody to come in and uh, execute on something. Uh, we have, we also have a lot of uh, IT staff augmentation engagements where um, let's say, let's say a company is like they're an events company or they are, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the manufacturing space. They need some type of engineering, some type of software engineering, but it's not practical for them to hire the entire software engineering team, right? You know, they don't, they don't want to hire the DevOps guy. They don't want to hire the network engineer. They don't want to hire the front end engineer. They don't want to hire the back end engineer. Uh, they don't want to hire the web guy. Um, it makes sense for them to come to us and partner with us to help build and then maintain whatever digital infrastructure they need, uh, be it a software application or, um, you know, say web presence or something like that. Generally speaking, we're supporting and building custom software for firms where they just, they can't find something that exists for them off the shelf. Interesting. Okay. And you said you acquired the company. How did that go? Was it you and the other people or was it you and some investor money? How did that work? 
Yeah, so it was, it was primarily me, um, and uh, so so just really really carefully structured financing, um, and uh, so the original owner, the founder. Um, again, I didn't buy the full company; I only bought fifty percent of the company. Uh, the original owner is who I bought that fifty percent. He's still engaged. He's focused on uh, some core internal projects, um, and uh, really just you know figured out what what worked. I mean, looked at the cash flows, sort of discounted them back to the present. Looked at a sort of a sort of things from a fair multiple standpoint, uh, and uh, said, you know, we we actually looked at it from a different perspective. We said, what would work and allow the company to grow, as opposed to what would work and put the most fat in your pocket, right? So um, we we sort of structured things that way, where where we could come in and still I could come in and still do interesting things. So who's who's operating as the CEO in the business then? Um, so again, as fifty percent owner, we don't really we're pretty flat. We don't really have that. It's it's a joint partnership where we're we're both sort of asking uh, and answering questions uh, to and amongst each other. Okay. So are you are you are you operating as CEO or is he? Um, it, really, I'm sort of operating as as president. Um, and as it relates to certain aspects of the business, I would say uh, similar to CEO. So uh, let me describe it in a different way. We have broken up components of the business into how we are doing decision making. Um, so marketing is sort of under my head. Uh, the process engineering, when a client comes to us and says, hey, I, I've got to build this thing, um, is, is sort of under me. Uh, resource hiring, example, uh, is under him. Finance is, is actually kind of a shared thing, but we have we have an internal accounting team and you know we're a pretty simple business, right? So the accounting is actually not that complex. So we just kind of look at reports uh, together. Um, and, and so it's more of a divide and conquer than it is a one and then number two. How many employees do you have? So we're, um, we're about 20 here in Salt Lake City. And then we have uh, about 75 international. And then we have about 50 contractors that we use for really specialized functions where it doesn't make sense for us to bring those folks in house. And we've, we've had that contractor relationship for 11 years. Interesting. Okay. So I want to go back to the startup game for a second. You said that you'd kind of been around the startup game for a little bit and got sick of it. And then went back and got your MBA. Demystify the startup game for us because often people are kind of enamored and they think that's such a great space. And um, it's good to hear somebody kind of give the contrarian view to it because it isn't as easy as it is and it isn't always as fun. And yeah, it, it's hard. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of the first thing to say is if you if you look at innovation, corporate innovation, most of it actually occurs at large businesses where they are doing a strategic initiative internally to try to solve a, solve a problem for their business. And that lends itself to creating new business lines, new verticals, going into new spaces, um, these sorts of things. But um, the failure rate is very high. I mean, you hear you hear the sort of one out of ten failure rate, and I, I would probably argue that it's probably higher that than that if you sort of consider that a lot of these big businesses are innovating. Small businesses, and in particular startups, are typically typically doing one of two things: they're trying to solve a need that they don't think is adequately provided for in the market by either creating something new or by just providing a better good or service. And the mistake that I think a lot of entrepreneurs make, especially in the sort of startup game, is they think, if I just build this product, they will come. If I just build this thing, then they will come. If I just market this thing, even if it's not very good, they will come. It A, a business is 
like a car. You have to maintain it. You need wheels. You need tires. You need uh, an engine. You need siding. You need, um, you know, windshield. Uh, you've got to have a steering wheel. And too often, businesses fail to recognize, especially these folks in the startup game who, who are, um, you know, trying to figure out something sort of unique, fail to recognize that there's there's a component part of this business that I don't have that uh, I haven't built that uh, sort of needs to be put in place. And that, that's that's the difficult part of the startup game is you're typically capital constrained. You're, in many respects, uh, probably fumbling in the dark because it's, it's very difficult to get all of those pieces of the vehicle and understand how they, they fit together. Um, and then uh, you're going to have to learn by making a lot of mistakes, failing very, very fast. So... The, and the failure rate is, is very high. So that's, that's, that's part of the reason why that, uh, that startup game is, is particularly difficult, at least from my perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I've often seen so many companies, especially in the U.S. market, where they try to invent something cool, and like you said, then try to go out and sell it, instead of trying to identify what the customer's needs are and solving it. And, and when the customer has money and has a need, it's easy to actually create a company around that, but much harder just to create something cool and try to create a need from that. You said that you had some creative financing in place to do the acquisition. Can you walk us through how that works? Um, yeah, so you just talk high level. I mean, parts of it are um, seller financing, right? Parts of it are based on some degree of performance. Uh, parts of it are based on um, putting some money down, obviously, like with, with anything. Um, but a large, a large percent of it is uh, seller, like sort of structured seller financing um, that is Again, we looked at it from the standpoint of what is best fit for the business, what allows the business to grow while still appropriately rewarding the seller for that piece of equity. Um, so, so structurally, that's how we sort of did things. Yeah, I've been pushing a lot of my clients recently to do acquisitions, especially at the time that we're in right now, that a lot of the baby boomer um, owners are kind of tired. They don't really have it in them to run this thing for another seven years, and they will do a seller carry. Um, did your bank consider that as equity in the deal at all, or did you have to put some money in to have the bank uh, loaned you as well. The the bank, interesting. Well, so this is uh, pre sort of current events. Um, three years ago, banks don't look at seller financing as debt in most cases, right? Because it's pre tax and um, the the debt sort of moves out pre tax. You can't sort of write it off like traditional debt, uh, depending on how things are structured, uh, and, and in most cases, so um, a bank will actually be willing to lend on top of that. Uh, so for a business owner who's sort of looking to sell, uh, it's favorable. And for a person who's looking to buy, it's favorable because uh, they won't sort of count it against you, if you will. Um, and I think you're right to push your clients to either look to sell or, or look to buy. Um, you know, I think, I think especially on the buying side, things are appropriate. You have a lot of baby boomers who are sort of looking to retire. Um, there is a wave of opportunity that's coming and will not go away. Uh, I, I think that um, there's, it, it's something like one or $2 trillion in assets that need to change hands in the next uh, 10 to 15 years and, and probably sooner. So tell us about some of the lessons that you've learned along the way then in the three years that you've been there running the business now. Yeah, I think um, the most important lesson is no matter what you do, the most important aspect of any business is the people. You have to hire exceptional talent. You have to incentivize them to do their job and do it well. And you've got to you've got to hire quickly, or sorry, hire slowly and fire uh, quickly. Um, and and hiring is 
for any business, the hardest thing you'll, you'll do, uh, um, hands down. Uh, and, and probably having a checklist process, which we put in place pretty early, uh, of saying, look, you have to meet these criteria to sort of be a valid candidate, um, is, is really, 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 really valuable. It's, it's so simple to just put in a check, check uh, the box uh, process in terms of who you're hiring and just stick to it and be really willing to just wait for the right, right person to come along, right? So, uh, you know, most people don't marry the first girl they meet. Uh, and it's the same, the same is true when you're, you're trying to hire that, that right person. Um, I think that's been the, the primary lesson. Uh, the, second, the second lesson is that when you're building a business, when you're, when you're growing a business, when you're trying to solve something uh, that hasn't been solved before, and we're a service business, right? So our business is constantly changing with the market. Um, so in a certain sense, we are... Uh, reinventing ourselves. Getting feedback from your customers isn't a pro, isn't isn't like a task. It, it, it is it's essential to your business. It is your business, right? You you have a business because you have customers. Um, you don't have customers because you have a business. What do you mean by that? Walk us through that again. So if I am not actively and, and sort of habitually, and I, and I do mean habitually, like habit, um, taking the time to communicate with my customers, not as people who are just paying the bills, but as people whose vested interest I have towards their success, then I am going to have a hard time really fundamentally, fundamentally understanding what it is they need to be successful. And as a service provider, I'm going to have a hard time providing a service that is truly valuable to them that they're going to want to continue to stick around and, and be a partner for you know 10 years, what have you. So how do you systemize that? How do you systemize that connection with the customer? What do you guys do internally? What do you specifically do? So structurally we have, we have certain benefits, right? So we're as folks building and maintaining software, we're talking to the client or, or one of their sort of core parties, maybe their product owner or something like that. Uh, two, three times a week, at least on sort of a, a project management standup, right? So some of the time can be used to gather that. We also have our sales team uh, has sort of regular check-ins with the clients, right? Every quarter uh, at, at least to say, you know, how can we help your business? It's not a, it's not a, how are we doing? It's how can we help your business? We'll, we'll hear the, how we're doing uh, during the, the project management calls. Right. Um, but it's, it's, how can we, how can we help your business? And by having a conversation that's, you know, is there, is there something else we can do for you? Um, as opposed to a, you know, like what can we do to get more money or what can we do to expand our project scope or what can we do to, um, what can we do to sort of deepen the relationship when typically they mean selling? Um, we can actually adjust our business model by changing resource mixes by, um, changing communication patterns uh, and then because our world is changing all the time in terms of the software development process, um, train our people differently, right? So we have, we have Friday training with all of our resources once, once a week, right? So uh, the project managers in the United States, they have a two hour training and we pay for outside consultants to come in and train our resources and our, uh, all of our engineers in our, all of our offices have two, two hours of training basically a week. And we can adjust our training to better be able to provide for our clients. And that's, that's, a, that's a cost to the business. Yes, but... Huge upside though that you're leveraging right now. Right. 
right? It's a cost of the business, but we get the opportunity to train our folks on something that our clients need like globally across the entire business. And um, it's just, it just makes us much more effective. What kind of things, what kind of things are you training the internal team on outside of the, the engineers? Are you training everybody in the company or just the engineers? So let me, let me talk about, uh, we're, we're training everybody. Um, so let me talk about sort of sprint and agile methodology. Okay. So sprint and agile methodology, m- most folks who come to us, they say, do you do agile? Do you, do you, are you an agile team? Do you do scrum? Um, and most folks don't actually know what that means or what they're asking for, but it's a, it's a buzzword, right? You've heard it. You kind of generally get it and you know, you're asking for that thing. Well, it's actually to our benefit if we train our clients on the proper way to do those things so that we can move them into that process that we can execute on their behalf because we're going to be able to move much more quickly in providing services and everybody's going to get on the same page and we're going to use an established process and they're going to take that skill set and apply it to their business and then they're going to come back and say, hey, within this sort of broader agile methodology, I want to be able to include this sort of marketing thing, which is in the software you're building. Great. Okay. Then we can, then the teams can basically talk and they can be cross-functional. So we have spent a time, for example, recently retraining project managers on how to just do user stories, right? How is the, how do you properly write user stories for your clients um, for these projects in a way that both conveys what it is that the sort of the client's trying to achieve and then also gives the enough information to the uh, project manager or sorry uh, to the engineer and then um, that's just one example so another example is we're actually teaching the project managers um, some of which who are functional some of which who are technical um, you know like here is the engineering structure by which we are executing sort of a QA uh, process, right? Like here's the code, here's how we do it. Here's how it is structured in the code. Go into GitLab and or GitHub or what have you and review the engineer's code. You should be able to read that and review that now. And having training like that allows us to disproportionately add value uh, to our clients in a way that uh, I'm not sure that most firms are doing. So our, our objective, our broader objective is um, you know building building a very very high quality engineering culture. Well, it's interesting because I've always said that the more you grow your people, the more they'll grow the company. That the leader's real job is to grow their team. Right? Yep. The more that we actually focus on growing the skill set. So I've kind of identified about twelve core competencies that leaders need to be strong in, like situational leadership, coaching, delegation, time management, project management, interviewing, effective meetings, classroom teaching. Know, conflict management, all stuff that if you grow the leadership team and those skills, they can then you know propel the organization. It's it's great that you're actually dedicating that two hours a week. And it's just like every every athlete keeps working on their skills. Why wouldn't leaders and business people too? So yeah, and it's it's hard to do. Um, and it's you know like the guys uh, they they have to put in more time on the days where we do training, right? And they kind of gripe and do things, but what happens? is that, well, the, the, the burden that everybody cares kind of uh, carries gets a little lighter, right? You know, one of the more famous business books out there is Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he, he talks about the quadrant two activities, the high impact 
low urgency activities and that's training and it right. is hard it's hard to do it because we always have the urgent kind of pressing for our time um, and it feels like we're avoiding stuff that's important but the reality is the payoffs from those activities can be really huge right right you, you kind of Audrey shucks a little bit over your hiring lessons and the checkpoints or checklists I want you to give us some, some more specifics because I think you actually identified a very simple system that companies can probably use. Can you walk us through what those checklists are like for your hiring? First, I'll kind of walk through our kind of general process, just very high level, and then we'll go through the, the checklist. So the first, the first thing is we make them take an online test, right? They're, let's, we'll just talk about engineering, for example, but we, we apply this to everybody, right? So for engineers, we make them, before they even talk to us, they, they take an online test, right? Because there is a qual, there's a quantitative measure and a qualitative measure to uh, an engineer skill, but the, the quantitative measure, like you pretty much have to have, right? You, you need to be able to write certain right. theories and you need to have a certain amount of competency to even work for us. And so before we even sort of talk to somebody, we're spending money uh, to just kind of like screen a lot of people. They hit the test, you know, most people get a 20%, but we know, boom, as soon as somebody gets an 85% or above, like this is somebody we want to at least move to the next stage. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then after we complete that sort of first wave of folks, and then we do have folks that we're training up from scratch and we hire out of schools, but we also have qualitative measures for those things. Um, after we get to that stage, we put them actually with a peer. We don't, we don't put them with somebody senior first. We put them with somebody who is, you know, a year or two maybe ahead of, ahead of them. And we say, what is the opinion that you have of this person? Run them through uh, basically kind of the soft skills uh, set of items that, um, you know, are going to be required to be successful in this job, right? Do the, can this person do it, right? Uh, we basically empower that, that, you know, typically junior resource to say, or, or that resource at that same level to say, you know, is this person somebody you would want to walk, work with? And do they have the basically the same soft skills that you do? Um, and then they'll say sort of yes or no. Um, and then they, they, during that time, HR isn't actually interviewing them. We don't let HR make those types of decisions. HR is just getting the sort of uh, uh, qualitative feedback. Do you have the kind of basic behavioral skills, professional right professionalisms uh, that, that would let you in and they're kind of, ch they're kind of chatting with them as they're kind of moving along those stages right? and gathering feedback. And then they're going to talk to a senior person and that senior person is going to um, run them through basically a case study. And, and then we present them actually with a, um, another hard kind of like impromptu test uh, that they have to sort of like the laptops right there. You've got to, you've got to solve this, this problem. Right. And we see how they do under pressure because they weren't expecting it. Um, they they weren't prepared for it. We just kind of, we kind of put them in. What kind of mistakes have you made in your recruiting process or in your hiring process in the past? What, do you, what mistakes have you made and how have you learned from those? Yeah. I, um, we were standing, we stood up in another office recently and getting culture right is really hard. And we could have done it faster if we had, we, we did group interviews. Basically we had, we had one person and we had that person talk to um, several people at the same time. And what resulted was groupthink. Several candidates or several, um, like was it one candidate and several people on your team or several candidates and one person on your team? One, one candidate and several people on our team. And okay. we found this out later that they were sort of following this practice. And we said, no, 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 you, you can't do that. Right. Because 
you're going to be too easily swayed by the person um, and and each other, and there's going to be groupthink. Um, and uh, so we 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 had to kibosh that. And and so really, you want individual interactions with a person to really understand how they're going to perform. It's okay to have maybe two people in a room, but those two people interviewing that one person still need to have an equal weighting to the other two people who've talked to that person. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's interesting. We've actually done reverse panels where we have multiple candidates being interviewed by one person at our company. And all we're looking for amongst that group is who's the strongest culture fit and who are the strongest leaders. After we identify that, then we'll bring them in to see if they have the skills to match it. But we only want to even talk to people that are the right culture fit. Right. It's like you're, you're kind of doing some of that as well. Yeah, yeah, very much so. so you talked about getting culture right is tough. What, what's culture? How, how do you define culture inside your company? So cult, culture inside of our company is don't say something can't be done, right? Uh, you've got you've to give the who, what, when, where, why, and how. If you don't give the why, then, I mean, that's effectively almost grounds for termination, right? People need to know the why. People need to know why you are doing something and why it's important. Um, so we, we really push that. I mean, we, we actually state that at the beginning of every single internal project management meeting that we have across the, the company uh, every Monday. It's, we start with what are the who, what, when, where, why, house, and what is it defined and why, um, and we, re- we repeat that. Um, and the other, the other piece of culture is um, do, we want to do the work so well that we are going to be able to do it much more effectively next time, right? So while the, the object of what we're trying to accomplish may be to you know, build a specialized widget that takes you know, data inputs from XYZ locations, we want to understand the implicit engineering behind it and how to do it exceptionally well so that this idea that we're maybe kind of learning in one project and executing for someone is not only incredibly functional, not only written incredibly well, but something that uh, because we understand implicitly, we're going to apply that same level of excellence to other other projects when that comes up, um, and we're going to have the the concept is going to be ingrained across uh, the culture a little bit uh, a little bit more clearly than if we just kind of like we, we don't do cowboy coding is basically interesting. Okay, so tell me about your um, what are you focusing on in terms of your growth right now? Where are you continuing to to work on your skill set as you scale? Yeah, I think um, so. For me personally. Uh, I'm spending a lot more time on the marketing side and understanding, look, the world, the world is changing and we have to change with it. People are, people are, there's there's some Gartner data that we have and and is publicly available where customer preferences in terms of shopping for not only um, products, but services is really kind of moving online. And it really fundamentally changes how we're going to communicate with our clients in that sort of first communication. And so I'm spending a lot of time to sort of personally understand, you know, what, what is it, what does it take to communicate the values that we are building with our engineering culture to someone who, you know, may not come from an engineering background or may not appreciate the, you know, uh, the money we throw at all this training and, and these sorts of things. So it's difficult to convey. And um, so, so we're sort of, I'm, I'm sort of personally reteaching myself uh, a lot of sort of the, the basics of marketing. And I try, I try to get back to the basics. Where are you learning that? How are you learning that? Um, so, 
you know, you've you've sort of referenced reference books. What I'm doing is I'm kind of like, uh, have you ever played that that uh, or seen the kid play the Wikipedia game where you get from one Wikipedia article to the other, just kind of going through links? Well, I'm trying to identify, um, okay, who are the biggest and best companies, right? And then um, almost always when I read a book, so I read read a book, uh, How Google Works, right? Um, uh, Eric uh, uh, Eric Schmidt and um, uh, one other gentleman who uh, were previously at Google. Uh, wrote this book and it was sort of about their engineering culture, but invariably in one of these books by sort of these prominent individuals, they mention other books, right? And so I just have a little hierarchy of like, okay, go from go from biggest to smallest and work my way backwards. Uh, so so trying to get the the whole 52 books a year, um, I've been on pace for that. I'm actually a little bit ahead this year, um, uh, and uh, I think that's that's kind of the approach that I'm taking. It's been cool. exceptional. Have you have you read Insanely Simple? No, who wrote that? Strong. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's about Steve Jobs' methodology of just simplifying everything inside of Apple. And right. they, they give some very, very specific lessons, like probably 10 or 15 um, strong lessons on simplification. And basically, it's multiplication by simplification. And, and it's really how they simplified meetings, simplified their marketing, simplified messaging, simplified coding. They real and it's it's really strong. I was really impressed. The rest of the books I've ever read about Apple are just kind of about Apple, but this was like a, a tactical, very simple lessons, very specifically laid out lessons on scale. Yeah. And another one is Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Okay. Highly, highly recommend that. And I don't recommend a lot of books, and those are probably the two that I've been recommending over the last three or four years. But the hard thing about hard things is all about um, being a wartime CEO. It's essentially being a um, and in the trenches during a time of crisis. And he, he wrote it during the 2001 and 2009 global financial crisis and the dot-com meltdown of 2001, uh, how they scaled companies in real strong crisis modes. And again, very specific, tactical, good lessons out of that too. Correct. Well, I've, I've got it written down here. Yeah. So and I have two more books that I've got to go. So, so give, us, give us your two then. You're six months into the year, 2020 20, uh, or 26 books down. Yeah, uh, so... Um, Influence by, by Cialdini. Uh, uh, actually, I'm surprised I hadn't read that book earlier. Um, and then I'm actually going to say a, uh, a biography uh, that I just finished, Titan, uh, about John D. Rockefeller Sr. and uh, sort of his approach to business and, and sort of his background. So it's, it's a business book in that it is you know, about sort of the, the greatest capitalist of all time, but um, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a phenomenal read. I mean, it took me forever, but it was an incredible, incredible read. That's cool. Yeah, Cialdini's stuff on, on influence, and then his second book, Persuasion, he's um, come and spoken to our Genius Network event a couple times. And then um, if you liked the Rockefeller book on Titans, take a look at a book called Rockefeller Habits, which is all of the habits that Rockefeller and his businesses use to scale their companies, but it's written more as a, it's by Vern Harnish, um, but it takes, again, a lot of the, the concepts that we learn through reading about Rockefeller and it's kind of created us a, a code of systems that you can use to scale companies too, which is cool. Got it. Yeah. Okay. It's on my list. I love your, I love your kind of Wikipedia train as well. I can see the way your mind works on this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about remote teams. I mean, you, you talked about that you've got, you know, 75 um, kind of remote or 50 different contractors you're using. Walk us through how you manage those kinds of groups. Prior to my arrival, the the company was was really sort of like fully remote like they only periodically sort of meted uh, can't speak meted met 
in the it's a uh, it's Tuesday. It's close to Monday. <laughs> the uh, the team only met periodically in an office, and that that sort of changed because we had we had a just a, a slew of things we needed to get done, and we felt that it would be pretty practical to be in the office. But everything was done via email and, and scheduled phone calls, and I said, well, no, we need to we need to increase communication velocity. So we went and um, we partnered with Rocket Chat, which is a, the basically their uh, open source version of Slack. Uh, and so we're the North American software development partner for them. So we, we've switched to Rocket Chat and we make sure that every team, uh, every functional team has a group. Um, every functional team, we switched over to G Suite. Every functional team has a, a G Suite group where if anything is emailed to that group, everybody sees it. Um, and we send all internal communication through that. Uh, so that way everybody is on the same page at all times. There's sort of, we've made it so that there's no excuses for not being aware of what's going on or, and clients can send to that as well so that they know, uh, hey, this is for this group, everyone be aware. Um, and we basically try to like systematically kill any information gaps where people don't have the availability of information about what is going on with the project. Um, we have basically made, we have basically made uh, the client communication uh, meetings mandatory to a certain degree, right? It depends on the, there are situations where it's not mandatory, but we make our clients meet with us. Um, most folks would say, oh no, just send me an email, but that doesn't work. So, um, cause you, you need to actually have a, a live human being on the other sort of line um, as close to face-to-face -face, uh, communication as, as possible. And so we, we force that. So we prioritize communication by being first, if you can get face-to-face -face and you can get in front of the person, you can go meet at Starbucks. Um, that's what we want. If you can't do that, we want a video call, right? Just like you and I are having a conversation. I want you to be able to see uh, my uh, facial expressions. Um, and if we can't do that, we want just a phone call. It's interesting. So when you are making the clients meet with you, how are you explaining that to the clients and getting their buy-in? Um, just really practically. I mean, I mean, look, so I, you know, I asked the question, um, or one of the sales guys asked the question, or, or one of the project managers asked the question, you know, like, you think it's pretty reasonable that human beings evolved with face-to-face -face communication and, um, and they'll say, yeah. Well, like, you know, how, how recently have we been communicating via telephone? I don't know, maybe 100, 200 years? I say, oh, yeah, that's probably true. Um, and uh, so, so you'd say, what type of communication probably conveys the most information? Well, sitting here with you is usually what they'll say. We'll say, oh, that's great. We want to do that as much as possible because... I can't give you, and then we, we just kind of basically repeat what they said to us and say like, yeah, we didn't evolve to um, send letters to each other or electronic mail um, or text messages. Uh, you know, we, we evolved uh, in social groups of about, you know, 150 people. And um, it's really important that we have these uh, in-person communications. Otherwise, um, certain things are going to break down. You're not going to understand my tone. I'm not going to understand your tone. Sometimes it is okay to be angry at me. Sometimes it's okay for me to be angry at you. Um, you know, we don't yell at each other, but we need to be able to convey with as much information as we can convey and as much information as we can consume, um, you know, in, with the tools we have. And so the best tool is getting in front of the person. Cool. And so you're leveraging video as much as possible then? Video as much as possible, right. Tell us what some of the other technology tools you're using to scale the company. So um, we, we built a sales automation platform that... We put all of our, it, it's like a CRM. I mean, it, it, 
but it has sort of a lot of these automated sort of drip campaign, drip sequences, uh, SMS uh, things in there because everybody does have, you know, while I'll talk about communication preferences, everybody does have sort of their unique communication preferences. This guy just happens to respond more via text. Well, let's, you know, <laughs> let's push that, but we, we're, we're gonna push people towards these sort of video communications, but people do respond more to our text. So try on course.com and we actually made it a public tool or um, we sort of satisfied it. But we send all of our client communications um, through that outside of, you know, sort of video calls and, and stand-ups, and eventually it'll, it'll have video calls and these sorts of things. But using a CRM, everybody can get on the same page in terms of client, you know, what is the contract? What is the expectation? You know, what is um, the deliverable date? When was the last time we communicated with this client? When was the last time they called in? Had they left a voicemail uh, that we missed? Um, having all of that in one, one place where the, the entire team, and we do, we do limit access to certain things, uh, for certain people, but where the team can get as much information as possible to make proper decisions uh, is incredibly helpful. It's interesting. Um, all right, so we're going to wrap with one final question. If you were to go back to your 21-year-old self, thinking about yourself, but kind of just leaving the, uh, just leaving college, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now, but you wish you'd known back then? Yeah, I mean, uh, finance. There's Im immutable laws of finance, and the sooner you can jump into something that you understand and you can start compounding, um, compounding capital, uh, do it, right? So if I, if I would have uh, purchased a business at age 21 as opposed to age 27, um, I'd be a lot further along. Um, and so I, so I would have looked for opportunities to do that uh, sooner. And I'm, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure I would have figured it out, but you know. Give us that in layman's terms. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, I think Einstein said like, you know, one of the, the, the greatest things is, is uh, you know, greatest forces of the universe is uh, compounding. Well, um, if I can grow 10% a year, right, or 20% every two years, then, you know, in, in basically seven years, I have, I've doubled my money, right? So um, there's, there's not only a compounding effect to wealth, there's a compounding effect to knowledge. And if you're in a position to compound both, you're going to come out the other side much more effective than you were. And so the sooner you can put yourself in the situation to, uh, to, to sort of be Aristotelian or quote Aristotle, right? Be magnanimous. Um, if you're, if you're, that's something you want to do, uh, you're going to get there much more quickly because, uh, and, and at the end of your life, you're going to probably be much more ahead of other folks, if not in sort of monetary terms, but in terms of a skill set and a life well lived. So, I love that you learned that you wanted to do it at 21, but even starting at 27, you're well ahead of the curve. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Ian, Ian Reynolds, partner and chief solutions architect at ZipTech. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Some great lessons, cool insights. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.